Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we'll be talking about the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, in past years, we've sort of been like, these are the good films, and these were the bad films. And like, that's fine, and we'll still do, you know, we'll still talk about like the things we liked and the things we didn't like. But this, for me, this was year 10 of going to Sundance. I think, Adam, for you, it was your eighth year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so, so yeah. We've been doing it for a little while now, and what we wanted to talk about is the way that the festival has changed and sort of give you a perspective on the past of Sundance and the past decade of it and what the future of the festival could be. And just a little background, Sundance is a big deal because, especially in the 90s, it became this launching pad for these luminary directors, you know, Sundance was the home of Reservoir Dogs and Clerks and um, Sex Lies and Videotape, and like, and so Sundance for this sort of indie movement of film became ground zero, where these auteurs could make a name for themselves with these smaller films, and then as those smaller films, you know, were able to gain sort of mainstream access, Sundance's relevancy continued to grow. So you could have a film like Little Miss Sunshine debut at Sundance and then go all the way on to, you know, win an Oscar and be this huge hit. Um, and if you're, you're a studio, that seemed like a pretty good investment. You'd, you'd pay a big acquisition fee, um, but, you know, you would possibly get a bigger, a good return in an indie marketplace um, where indies could compete. And then the marketplace changed and it started becoming more about blockbusters. But then... Also, at the same time, the streamers started rising as well. And so Netflix and Amazon and companies like them were sort of looking at Sundance as this place to either uh, pick up titles that could be a big deal or, um, you know, they could even use it as kind of a launching pad for their own material. Um, And so the Sundance of 2020 is very different though from what it was 10 years ago or even five years ago. So we're going to dig into that about how the festival has changed um, and how that was very apparent this year. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting festival. I mean, the, the thing that, that I've always loved about Sundance is the discovery um, going there a lot of the films that you choose to see, you're just going by a synopsis and maybe you know the filmmaker, maybe you know a couple of people in the cast, maybe you don't. Um, but walking into a movie like Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which becomes this like smash sensation, or you know something like Brooklyn, where uh, you know um, the filmmaker had made uh, something previously that uh, you know people were aware of, but Brooklyn, um, you know, was just this this another step up. It was John Crowley was the filmmaker, um, things like that. And then, and then hand in hand, you had the big premieres of some pretty major movies. You would have at least one every year. You'd have something like boyhood or Manchester by the sea or before midnight. Um, trying to think of others. Um, but like films like that kind of made it worthwhile. And then, and then you would come away with like a discovery. Like I remember going into the witch. Uh, I didn't know who Robert Eggers was. I didn't know who any, who any one of the cast was. I just thought the synopsis sound interesting. And it turns out to be this, you know, horror movie that kind of catches fire. And, uh, you know, we're still talking about that movie five years later. And the director just made another insane movie uh, called the lighthouse that, uh, you know, his career kind of launched at the Sundance film festival. So that's been kind of the, the fun of it is going and seeing like, you know, I'm not sure 
you know, if there's going, I, I, you never know what's going to be the next whiplash, um, which I remember you and I were in the same screening of whiplash, uh, opening night and everyone just kind of went nuts for it. Um, but then in recent years, as kind of the marketplace has changed and changed in that, uh, you know, theatrical studios are not making indies. They're not making like mid budget dramas anymore, let alone indies. And, uh, it seems like people are going to the theater more and more just for like the Avengers Endgame. They're not going to show up to the theater to see whiplash. They'll catch that on streaming and whiplash indeed, like wasn't a huge theatrical success. Um, but as you know, as you said, it used to be a little bit more, um, um, the odds were better that you could maybe recoup your investment as things have changed. The, the kind of, uh, I don't know, the lineups at Sundance or the films that are playing at Sundance have kind of shifted. Um, and particularly the last three years, it's just felt a little bit more, I don't know, muted. Is that, is that the right word? Yeah, I think, I think muted is, is a good term for, for what's going on. Um, because and that, that's not to say there aren't still, um, like great films that premiere at Sundance, uh, you know, and, and I've certainly seen, I mean, uh, you know, eighth grade was there two years ago, which a lot of people loved. Um, wildlife was there two years ago, which I really liked. Stuff yeah. Like it's that. not, it's not that you go to Sundance like, man, what a waste of time. There's yeah. everything here is crap. It's not like that, but it's not like the festival. It used to be that the festival would kind of coalesce around like one film. Like this one film that everyone is talking about and you have, like, you didn't know it was coming. It doesn't have distribution. Oh my God, who's going to pick it up? This is insane. And so like, you know, a film like Beasts of the Southern Wild, which has no stars, it was Ben Zeitlin's first feature film. And, um, you know, everyone started talking about it. And so like that became the hot ticket or like, uh, I think I'm pretty sure Fruitvale was Ryan Coogler's first feature. Mm -hmm. Um, but that became like, and Michael B. Jordan was kind of a rising star. Like people had seen him like in, in some stuff, but he wasn't like, you know, a list. And then all of a sudden, like that film becomes this, like, Oh my God, you've got to see this movie Fruitvale. Um, and so that, but that hasn't really happened over the last few years. And I think, you know, and it's hard to pinpoint exactly why. Um, I do think that the festival is more cautious and there is something about the birth of a nation of it all. And I think that we can't <laughs> go on without talking about that. So for those who don't know, um, in 2016, um, Sundance had the premiere of Nate Parker's uh, film, The Birth of a Nation, which was about um, uh, Nat Turner's slave rebellion. Um, and it, this now this was a timing thing as well, because... That year had also been an Oscars, hashtag Oscars so white. So people were like, so studios were like, oh, well, here is this, you know, it's a drama from a black director. It's about this slave uprising. You know, it checks all these boxes. And it, it, sold, it sold for the highest amount at the time of any Sundance film. I think it was $17 million for Birth of a Nation. Fox Searchlight picked it up. And so they were like, oh, it's going to be this big thing. And no one thought to Wikipedia who Nate Parker was <laughs> and be like, oh, this guy has a bit of a past. Um, this may not be the easy lift, you know, that we were hoping for. Now, I'm not to say that I'm not going to say that Birth of a Nation colored everything, you know, afterwards in terms of, you know, what people were willing to spend or what Sundance was willing to acquire. But it is odd that like since then, like 2017, 2018, 
2019 and now this year, things have gotten a little quieter, um, especially in terms of what, what you said, the discovery of it all, uh, which was always my favorite part of Sundance because, well, both of us love going to TIFF um, and it's great to sort of get that first look like, you know, we're getting basically like, oh, we get to see Joker a month early, like that, <laughs> or a few weeks early. Like that's where we're, oh, okay. That's found. That's, that's nice. Um, like all the awards films we'll see in a week and like, you know, the films are great. Like, you know, they're like, you know, I, we saw Parasite this year and um, Ford v. Ferrari and like, it's good to go, but like, you don't need me to tell you about Ford v. Ferrari. <laughs> like there was a trailer. It stars Matt Damon and Christian Bale. It's about race cars. Like you, you, you got this one, but like, for something like The Witch, which, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy, that was, like, her breakthrough. So it didn't, like, didn't have any stars in it. No one knew who Robert Eggers was. But, like, when Adam goes to The Witch and, like, holy shit, you are not ready for this film, it puts it on people's radar. And, like, it becomes a thing that, like, as a as a reviewer, as a critic, as a journalist, you can, like, you're not, it's not that you go in, like, I'm going to start buzz on something. But if something, you know, really does affect you, you can start, you can be part of that conversation and that's exciting. And that like, that's where you have the, the power to actually make something tangible happen rather than just being like, I will lend some blurbs to the marketing machine. Yeah. Yeah. You get to champion films that you love and, you know, strictly speaking, the reviews out of Sundance, uh, a lot of the movies coming to Sundance do not have distribution, which means they don't have a studio that's willing to pay to put that movie in theaters. So when a film premieres to great buzz and it's looking for distribution, those producers of those movies are using the positive reviews to sell that movie to distributors. And if a movie doesn't get great reviews, it's a lot harder to sell. Um, although sometimes the studio, uh, you know, knows what it wants regardless of reviews. So if they have a formula that says like, well, we know that this will do well, uh, just based on the subject matter and the people in it, uh, we still want it. Um, but you know, uh, otherwise like, you know, like a movie, uh, like Swiss army man, and I think was an acquisition title at 2016 Sundance film festival. Uh, and that movie's nuts. And a 24 picked that movie up. Um, it was a 24, right? It was a 24. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that movie's insane, and it was just a a delight uh, uh, for me, myself, just to, like, write that review, to express how much I love that movie, and then to see that movie get picked up. Um, And then to see your quote on the poster. And to see my quote on the poster, yes. Um, Not that our job is to sell a movie, but it is nice to know that, like, um, you know, my... my expression of enthusiasm to recommend this movie is not just um, telling people to go see this movie, but it's also being used to make sure this movie does get seen by other people. Um, and Swiss Army Man may be a bad example because that movie I don't think did very well at the box office, although I think it's it's picked up a, um, a bit of a cult following um, following that. Um, but, uh, I mean, there are other examples. I mean, Brigsby Bear is a movie you really loved. Um, and no one saw was, that. <laughs> and no one saw that. Uh, but I would say, it, I, to give you a tangible example of like sort of an arc of of how of how like from a personal experience, uh, a few years ago I saw a documentary called Icarus uh, because it was like and so and like the synopsis was like this guy uh, this documentarian is looking into how doping would like improve his. Um, uh, you know, bike racing. And it's like, oh, so it's like supersize me, but like with doping. Okay, well, that that sounds interesting. And I saw it, and then like halfway through, it becomes this completely different other film about the Russian doping scandal because this guy happened to be in touch with the guy who was overseeing it, like for his own little personal project. He had no idea where the story was going, and he kind of like fell into a far more interesting narrative. 
Um, and so I, and I wrote about like, you know, this is not the film, like this is a really crazy film. And, um, and then Netflix picked it up, obviously not just because I said it, but because probably lots of other people were also saying the same thing. So Netflix picks up Icarus and then Netflix debuts it on their service and Icarus goes on to win the Oscar for best documentary feature. Um, so that's a, that's sort of a, a, a sort of a nice little Sundance narrative. This little film, this film comes to Sundance. No one really knows anything about it. It has kind of an interesting hook, but it doesn't have distribution. And then, so, and then, you know, by, you know, one year later, it has an Oscar. Um, and I don't know, obviously, I don't know how it performed on Netflix, but obvious, I think it would be fair to say that the film was a success. Yes. Yeah, I would agree with that. And then, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, in the following years, you know, there were still acquisition titles and still stuff like that. Um, but I mean, using this year as, as an example, we got there and a ton of stuff already had distribution, um, which kind of takes the, the, uh, kind of championing aspects away from it. And then a lot of stuff had already been seen by other critics and other people. Um, they had been pre-screened beforehand. So that kind of sense of discovery wasn't really there and, you know, just, you know, just for me, running down my list of the movies that I saw this year that I really loved, uh, I think all of them already either already had distribution or, um, you know, already had some kind of significant buzz around them. It wasn't like a, a, a Ryan Coogler who just kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, like, the, the I think the best film that both of us saw that didn't have distribution would probably be Palm Springs. Yeah. But that's like Andy Samberg. And it's great. But it's like, it's Andy Samberg and it's like J.K. Simmons. Produced by the Lonely Island. Produced by the Lonely Island. Like, it's not like this this out of nowhere movie. Yeah. Um, So that's that's a key difference there. But yeah, like this year, you know, my favorite films were Promising Young Woman, which is being released by Focus Features. Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which is being released by Focus Features. Wendy, which is being released by Fox Searchlight. Like, all the, and all three of them will be out by, like, Wendy comes out the end of February. Uh, Never, rarely, sometimes, always comes out in mid March, and Promising Young Woman comes out at the beginning of April, and that's and like and it's great. I got to see them a few months early and like say that they're great because they are great. But you know, there there is that nagging sense of do I need to be here for this? <laughs> do you need me here for this? And I also think like you know if you want to look at last year's Sundance, like you know you and I came out of last year's Sundance, we're like oh there's this great movie called The Report, and. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and that's the other thing like that, that we should probably mention is like it's it, it's sort of a dual edge thing, uh, not dual edge. It's it's there's two factors at play. One is what is Sundance programming and what they're programming recently in the past few years is stuff that's failing to like break out. And then the other half of the, uh, the equation is what are distributors doing? So in the case of something like The Report, um, you know, we're saying like, this is an amazing Adam Driver performance. Obviously when we saw it in January, we didn't know about marriage story, uh, that he would be somehow even better, but like Amazon, their thing was like, okay, well, we're kind of moving out of the drama space anyway, but why don't we try the Roma strategy where we'll give it a theater, a brief theatrical release, and then we'll release it on Amazon prime and see how that does. And it didn't and, 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 and put no significant backing into an awards campaign. Yeah, exactly. Like we're not really, you know, we won our awards. We got some stuff. We're fine. They got um, Manchester by the sea and they were like, we're out. We're yeah. Done. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay. That's how that works. All right. Well, yeah. and, and to, and, and obviously, you know, they have probably their own metrics of like, you know, was the investment in something like Manchester by the sea? Did that drive Amazon prime subscriptions? Did that drive more talent to us? Did that make us more profitable? And maybe it didn't. 
you know, maybe that huge fucking bummer of a movie. <laughs> I love Manchester by the Sea. I'll never watch it again. But yeah. like, you know, maybe that's, that's, you know, it got its awards and then they're like, peace. And so a film like The Report, now it just sits on Amazon Prime and like no one talks about it. It got zero Oscar nominations. And that's a shame because it's a really good movie. But, you know, that's to me went a really defeating Sundance story. Um, and that's yeah. the feels, and that's the thing of the last few years is that the Sundance stories of the last few years feel more like stories of defeat. Now, yes, there are something like The Farewell where like A24 picks it up and it becomes a modest hit over the summer, but also still earns zero Oscar nominations. Um, but it wasn't like a f- total failure. Um, you know, I think it helped elevate Aquafina, it elevated writer-director Lulu Wang. I think there are, there is some upside there. But like for me, like a, a sad story is like The Report or like The Tale. Like The Tale was this incredible film um, that really tapped into, um, especially like the, the Me Too movement as this woman sort of recounted her own story of abuse and how it unfolded uh, and sort of interrogating her own memories with a great performance by Laura Dern. And that was a film we're like, oh, and that was a film that year that like we, it was not on our original schedule. People started talking about like, oh, let's go seek it out. And we're like, this is fantastic. And then fucking HBO picks it up and it's like, here it is on HBO and no one sees it and that's the end of it. Yeah, it just like barely premieres. Yeah. And HBO, I think- HBO got mad at me because I said that they buried it and I'm sorry that they're upset when true things are said. They got upset about something else recently too. Uh, and it was just strange, but like it does not seem like HBO Films is doing what it should to support these films and these filmmakers. Um, but I think more largely, I, I mean, it, it sounds like we're complaining about Sundance. We're not. I don't think the problem is with Sundance or even with the films being made. I think the problem is with the marketplace. And you look at something like Blinded by the Light, which premiered at Sundance last year. If that movie premieres at Sundance 2013 um, and gets the same rapturous response that it got, it's a it's a huge hit in theaters. Like everyone goes out, they want to see this feel good story um, about a kid who's obsessed with Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, um, it just becomes a massive deal. Everything's on streaming nowadays. And so Warner brothers picked that movie up and they released it in theaters, but nobody went. And, you know, there was even Oscar buzz around that movie uh, around this time last year. And it just kind of went nowhere. And that's a really great crowd pleasing movie. It's the kind of movie you want to see in a theater, but it has zero recognizable stars. Um, and you know, it, it just, it's a tough sell, I guess, but like people just are not showing up to movie theaters to see films like that anymore, unless the, the marketing is on point to sell them something they've never seen before in their life. Um, and it feels like that's what it takes nowadays to, to get a box office success story from that. And, and I, and, and I sympathize with that. I really do. Like, I'm not mad at the audience. I'm not mad at people like, why didn't you go see blinded by the light? Because like yeah. you and I, we went to a festival, we were paid to go to this festival. So at no point has any money come out of our own pockets. You know, it's our job to go to the festival. Paid by our employer, not by Sundance. Exactly. Yeah. Like our, our, I don't, yeah, I don't want to make Sundance pays me. No. Um, yeah. Our employer pays us money to go to the festival and see movies and write about them. So I, you know, I am being paid to sit, you know, to go and cover these films, but like the average person, like what, what, if I come up to you and say, there's this great film Bind by the light. It's about this, uh, you know, kid and you know, he, he, he really falls in love with the music of Bruce Springsteen and you say, well, who's in it? Oh, well, no one you would know. Okay. Well, you know, is it by someone who I would know? Uh, it's from the director of bend it like Beckham. I haven't, I've heard of it. I haven't, I haven't seen that movie. Um, 
I mean, I like Bruce Springsteen all right, but I don't know if I want to hop in the car, go to the theater, pay $15 for a ticket, pay more money for concessions, sit in a theater, and then have someone be on their phone the whole film. I think I'll wait till it's on streaming. And that's yeah. the story. That's the and story. And it's not on streaming anywhere right now. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not on streaming anywhere because Warner Brothers, I assume it'll be on HBO Max or something like that. Yeah. Um, and that is kind of the, I mean, I think it's telling that at this year's Sundance Film Festival, a record was broken for the most money paid for for an acquisition title. And that was uh, for Palm Springs, the uh, Andy Samberg movie. And I promise we'll get to talking more specifically about the movies that we liked in, in a few minutes. Um, uh, but the record deal was for a, uh, it's a combo deal between um, Hulu and, what's the? Neon. What's the Neon, Neon, who uh, released Parasite. Um, so it has streaming packaged in there, and it makes sense because if you look at Hulu, what's on Hulu? Well, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Pen15, which is produced by The Lonely Island. So they probably have data that's telling them that the people who watch Hulu really like Andy Samberg stuff. So they can then sell that to their subscribers, and making Hulu the exclusive streaming home of Palm Springs ensures that that movie, if you want to see that movie, you have to have Hulu. And... I think that it's probably going to have a pretty wide audience because people are going to watch it on Hulu. But if you if you say like you know, um, Searchlight is going to pick that movie up, uh, the you know the box office prospects. I mean, Britney runs a marathon was a huge crowd pleasing, well rounded comedy that was at Sundance last year. Amazon picked it up, put it in theaters, and it didn't make any money. Late Night was like the most commercial movie we had seen at Sundance in years. Also, didn't make any money in in theaters. So. You know, the, the marketplace is changing. So I don't think the problem is with the movies that are being made at Sundance. I think the problem is that the marketplace is telling distributors and studios that people are not watching any movies in theaters. And thus, if you're bringing a movie to Sundance without acquisition and you're looking for someone to put your movie out, it's a much tougher sell. Um, and even the streaming services are, you know, they're trying to spend their money wisely and decide what works best for their audiences. So... I think that's part of the reason why, you know, we went to Sundance this year and we saw like four Netflix movies because, you know, Netflix brought some movies there that are going to be on streaming. And you know what? More people are probably going to see the last thing he wanted than, um, you know, uh, gosh, probably Zola. But who knows? Um, And that's just kind of the world we live in right now. It's just it's a changing marketplace. And I think that Sundance itself is going through some growing pains in in terms of trying to figure it out. Yeah. So that's kind of the twofold problem is that, so you, 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 the sense of discovery is sort of, is waning. And then when you do discover something like something like the tail, then you're dependent on like, well, will the distribution do right by it? Like, will it find the right distributor? Um, you know, will it find the right home? And you know, we can say it's like, why didn't why didn't you sell to this company or this company? And it's like it's like we're talking as if they as if producers have all everyone knocking down their door. Sometimes only a couple distributors come to you, and then it's a matter of like, well, what's going to help me recoup my investment? Like, will I take more money or less money? And like, what's best for the film? So like, Lulu Wang had a great story um, uh, recently where she was talking about how a streamer offered her way more money than A twenty four did for the farewell. But for her, it was more important to get the film into theaters for her brand as a filmmaker. Because if it was on a streamer, it would be it may do well, but it would also may disappear. And it just kind of falls into the content factory. Whereas when you give a film a theatrical release, um, 
it helps raise the profile. So for instance, even though it wasn't up for distribution this year, a film like Zola from A24, I think will be beneficial to the career of Janica Brown, even if the film isn't like a worldwide sensation. Yeah. It's or Bravo, it's, Bravo, not Brown. Yeah. It's much easier for a movie to kind of disappear or be kind of anonymous on streaming because mm -hmm. there are no receipts because Netflix right. and Amazon are not releasing data of box office and stuff like that. Whereas with The Farewell, when you're seeing like, ooh, look how well this is doing, studios come up to Lulu Wang, who made that movie, and say, what do you want to make next? Exactly. And that's not to be like anti-streamer. I think streaming has been a fantastic boon for documentaries. Um, I think like, because documentaries were never like, unless it was like Michael Moore is going to fart out some opinions. Um, like no one was really going to like go to the theater to see a documentary. Uh, and now it's a lot easier to like bring those documentaries to people and like people will talk about them and engage with them. So I think Sundance, Sundance has also always programmed great documentaries. That is something that has not changed is that their documentary programming is always on point. Um, and we saw some great docs this year. Yeah, for sure. And I don't think it's a coincidence that docs are thriving right now because people are watching documentaries on streaming like crazy uh, and not just true crime documentaries. So, you know, makes sense. It does. So like, yeah, we're not like being like, Sundance is bad now, but it is different, especially from a press perspective. Like if you're covering it and being like, well, what, what is there for, what, what am I doing here? What am I bringing to you, my reader, um, by virtue of being here? And we brought some good stuff. We saw some good stuff. We did. We certainly saw some good stuff. Let's talk about, let's talk about some good stuff. Now we've talked, we've, we've whined and complained for 25 minutes and everyone is tuned out. Such so let's talk about the good stuff we saw. <laughs> you want to run down our, uh, our personal favorites? Yeah, let's talk. Let's, let's, let's talk top five. Okay. Uh, well, I'll start off. Um, for me, do we want to go top to bottom? Yes. Okay. Uh, my number one. Well, my number one and number two are like kind of interchangeable at this point. But uh, let's talk about Palm Springs because that's the one that uh, kind of made the biggest splash, I think, um, because of the record-breaking breaking deal and because of the Lonely Island stuff. Um, this is a movie that uh, was produced by the Lonely Island, um, which is Andy Samberg and uh, Yorma Taconi and Akiva Schaefer. But um, it was not written or directed by... Um, the members of the Lonely Island. So it's it's an original story. It's a little hard to talk about. Um, the director is a guy named Mark's Barbacow, Max Barbacow. The writer is a guy named Andy Sierra. The best way to describe it is that Andy Samberg and Krista Milioti, who you probably know as the mother from How I Met Your Mother, um, encounter each other at a wedding in Palm Springs and uh, then have to kind of consider their life as they become stuck there. Uh, through reasons beyond their control. Um, I would say, like, the trailer is going to spoil what happens next. If you can, I would suggest not watching the trailer because I had a lot of fun um, with the surprises of it all. But if you do get quote-unquote spoiled, it's not a huge deal because the actual plot of the movie is revealed about 10 minutes in. Um, but it's really just a, just a really fantastic love story and a really hilarious comedy and also, like, genuinely emotional and i think samberg and miliotti give a pair of just really wonderful well-rounded performances they're each allowed to be goofy they're each allowed to be messy they're each allowed to be um dramatic and raw and emotional and uh i don't know i was just surprised and at, at every single point in this movie where it could have gone wrong it, it just kind of like makes the right choice and does the right thing and uh i loved it yeah i was 
I was laughing really hard throughout. It has so many good jokes, but like it has a real emotional core to it. uh, Sort of, it's kind of like an existential love story. And I know like you hear that and you're like, that sounds (laughs) terrible, but it's really good. It's really good. I won't spoil it, but I won't spoil the premise either. We will talk more about it. I think at a later date, once it's been released. Yeah, and humor-wise, like, it's not like Popstar or Hot Rod. It's not that broad. It does have moments of that broad humor in it, but it takes the characters a lot more seriously as as this arc of uh, a love story, essentially. So Yeah, it needs you to buy into them as human beings. So, yeah, and you do wholeheartedly. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fantastic. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, my favorite was Promising Young Woman. And that's my number two. And Palm Springs is my number two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Promising Young Woman uh, was is the feature debut of Emerald Fennell, uh, who previously worked on the second season of Killing Eve. Um, and the film stars Carrie Mulligan. And you've, the trailer's out. Uh, if you've seen it, you know that the film is about this woman who goes to bars, uh, pretends to be blackout drunk, a you know self-proclaimed nice guy comes to take her, you know, comes to help her out, but really ends up taking her back to his place. And then she reveals she is not, uh, wasted. She is stone cold sober and she is pissed off. (laughs) Um, and then there's a lot more to it than that. Um, this is a, a wild film, but it is perfectly constructed. Like the way it just kind of attacks rape culture and gets to that sort of, um, feminine fury, uh, that's been, rightly earned is is really done but uh it's done with a lot of flair uh and it's it's a film that takes a lot of big swings uh it's a certainly a film that will if people see it uh focus features is releasing it in april uh if people see it people are going to be talking about it it's not a film that you're just like okay and then you forget it like it kind of it burrows under your skin uh as intended uh and carrie mulligan is fantastic it's got a great bench of of actors as well. Um, it's got Bo Burnham. It's got Alison Brie. It's got Christopher Mintz Plass. It's got, uh, Adam Brody. Um, uh, who's the guy from Detroiters whose name? Sam I Richardson. Sam Richardson, Richard split at splitnet.net. Yes. <laughs> um, so good. It's everyone is so good, but this film is really, I think sort of a big, uh, breakthrough for, for Fennel. Um, it's just very well put together and I'm very excited for people to see this film. Like I, it's one of those films where it's like, ah, I can't wait. I can't wait to talk about it more. Um, but, uh, we were all sort of like electrified after the screening. It's going to stir up a lot of conversation and that's the point of the movie. Um, and I don't know, it's one of those movies that makes you just really excited to discuss because afterwards it's not like, it's not like you're debating, okay, what actually happened in that movie? It's that the movie poses a lot of really tough questions that don't have easy answers. And it does what I think the best movies do, which which just kind of makes you examine yourself and your own life and the choices that you've made and, um, the choices that you are making. And, uh, yeah, God, it's just so good. And it's super fun. The soundtrack is incredible. And I think Carrie Mulligan gives uh, one of the best performances I've seen in a long time. Um, I would not be opposed to seeing her get an Oscar nomination for it because I think it's just a really bold, ambitious turn from her um, that asks a lot from her, and, and she just rises to the occasion. So, But yeah, much like Palm Springs, I would also suggest not watching any more trailers for that movie. Just go in as cold as possible because it it does have twists and turns. But again, it's not like, ooh, that plot point is uh, like challenging. It's more 
the the way the narrative unfolds, it's again, it's kind of asking you to confront yourself and confront, um, you know, social norms. So, right, it's interesting. Yeah, there will be much to discuss. Yeah, and we will in April. We will most likely revisit Promising Young Woman. Yes. Yeah. Um. So, uh, what 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 else did you like? Um. So I really liked um Zola. I know which was a, a little bit of um uh d- divisive a bit. Uh. I mean, and this is the other thing is that you know some days at Sundance you see some really bad movies and then a uh. A movie can kind of lift your spirits. We had seen a couple of like kind of depressing movies before Zola. Zola is from A24. It's the movie that's based on a series of tweets, and it's just like super full of life and vibrant and popping, and uh, uh, just like really surprising and funny. And so I was just with it. I heard so like some people I talked to said that they were with it for the first third and then uh, kind of zoned out. But I found the whole thing really enthralling and funny and fun. And uh, the filmmakers want to watch. Um, what's her name? Jenica Bravo. Jenica Bravo. That's it. Um, and uh, I also think that Taylor Page gives a really remarkable performance to that one as well. But it's just a it's kind of a nutty like wild ride kind of movie. Um, but. Uh, it's also one I think people will be talking about. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, although, you know, it's funny. I mean, just to, to reference the first half of this episode, it could be like, oh, this will get people talking. It really depends on the distributor. Like, A24 is distributing Zola. It's supposed to come out this summer. What does that mean for Zola? I honestly don't know. Like, will it get people talking? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe. I mean, honestly, I don't think the summer is the best time for it because summers is like, I want to go see blockbusters. But then again, yeah. The Farewell did pretty well this summer for, for what it cost. Yeah. Um, so who knows? Like, it's, it's hard to say like, Oh, it'll get people talking, but I do think it is a film designed to have people talking. Like it's, 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 it doesn't just sort of fade in and out of your memory. It's very, uh, aggressive and it's uh, at the very least a, a great calling card for Bravo. Yeah. And a really great score by Michael Levy who did Jackie and under the skin. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, a film that I really liked, um, even though it is a quite a downer, is uh, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, which will be released by Focus Features in March. Uh, stars these two young unknown actresses, um, and uh, they play, uh, one of them is, they're both teenagers, one of them is uh, pregnant, and they, they live in rural Pennsylvania, so they have to kind of find a way to get to New York to get an abortion. And... What makes it so powerful is the way that um, the director, Eliza Hittman, uh, approaches it is very experiential. It's not sort of like, I'm going to make, you know, uh, an advocacy film. Like, obviously, the film has a point of view. It's very, uh, it is very pro-choice. If that offends you, you may not care for never, rarely, sometimes, always. But what I liked about it is that it sort of, it it takes you step by step about like, why this story is this story is not just happening to these two girls. This is not an anomalous story. And yet they're never rendered into ciphers where they're like, Oh, they're just any, they could be anyone. Like they, there is, there is substance to their story. They do feel like individuals while also standing in for, you know, if you are a young woman who lives in a rural area and your state has laws about like how you can get an abortion. And also there are these fake abortion clinics popping up that are really trying to convince you to, uh, you know, go through with the birth, regardless of your situation. Um, 
you know, it's, it's rough. And then, you know, the step-by-step of it, it makes it like, it's really hard. And yes, the film is kind of a gut punch, but I think it's a necessary and essential gut punch. uh, If you want to look at the reality of what abortion looks like in America, um, I'm sure I just sold the hell out of it to everyone. They're like, well, sign me the fuck up. <laughs> um, but I think it's a matters. I think it's important. I think uh, that kind of empathy is important. Um, so, you know, obviously, again, you know, it's the kind of film where I, I, I people may be like, I don't know if I really want to go to the theater to see uh, actresses I don't know who aren't movie stars, you know, go through an abortion drama. But I, I also feel like part of the beauty of filmmaking is the way it creates empathy. Uh, for situations that you may not be familiar with or for people you may not know. And I think it, it's a, it's a journey worth taking. Um, and it's funny, the film I kind of compared it to in my review is 1917, which also stars two actors. You don't probably know going through something <laughs> and <laughs> you know, uh, but it's, I guess war, you know, war is more important and uh, Benedict Cumberbatch doesn't show up at any point and never rarely, sometimes always. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that was a film I really liked and I, I hope people go see it. Yeah, that's one I missed, but I'm uh, curious to check that one out. Um, I also like Minari, um, which you saw as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an A24 and Plan B joint. Uh, Plan B is Brad Pitt's production company that produces a lot of Best Picture winners, like 12 Years a Slave and Moonlight. Um, Minari, I believe, is based on a true story about this uh, Korean-born family who moves from California to Arkansas, so the patriarch, played by Stephen Yeun, can start a farm. Um and kind of a, an American dream story. He wants to start a farm and grow Korean vegetables to sell um, to uh, Korean immigrants and families that are living in Arkansas. Uh, his wife, not too happy about this idea, not too crazy about moving to uh, you know a, a rural place. They're not even moving to a city in Arkansas. They're moving to um, kind of the country in Arkansas. And uh, it's kind of their struggles to um, – go through this like their marriage is struggling but the entire film is told through the eyes of the the their young child um and i'm gonna look him up because he, he gives a just a tremendous performance alan um, kim alan kim is the name of the the kid who plays david and he's a seven-year-old boy uh you know the the film is set in the 1980s and uh he and his sister were both born in america so um the the mother's mom uh their grandmother comes to live with them and there's kind of a a clash between the young david and the grandmother because she doesn't necessarily fit the mold of what he believes a grandmother should be he wants her to bake cookies and he he wants her to cook um and be more traditional and and she's just not that but it's kind of a story of the the struggles of this family and uh you know can this marriage make it and the you know the the question of what's more important fulfilling the american dream or doing what's best for my family and and that's kind of um hand in hand there and uh yeah i i really love this movie and i think it's probably going to be a bit of a big deal when it hits theaters later this year given the uh people involved yeah i i have i have good i, I think it's it's some, a, a film we, we saw more than once at Sundance this year was like the family drama, you yeah. know, and it, and like, so there were films that were just a grind. It was just like, and I don't want to call them out because what's the point? Um, I don't think either of them found distribution, to be honest, um, or at least they haven't so far. But the thing about Minari was like, it has the highs and lows. Like, yes, there is some like hardship uh, in this story, but like, there's also some really funny stuff in there. <laughs> like it feels warm and lived in. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh really well made. The filmmaker, the writer director, uh, is Lee Isaac Chung. Um, and yeah, it's a 
terrific piece of work. Yeah. Um, and then a film that, you know, if you want to talk about divisive films, uh, I really liked Wendy a lot. <laughs> and we got out of the screening and I found that was not a commonly held belief. <laughs> Um, there, were, but like I, you know, it's funny. There were some people who really didn't like it at all, and then there were some people who, like me, who were like, "Oh, this is pretty great." Uh, it's the new film from Ben Zeitlin, the guy uh, who directed um, *Beast of the Southern Wild*. It took him seven years to to make this follow up, uh, and it's a reimagining of Peter Pan told from the perspective of Wendy. But it kind of goes beyond that in trying to find a find new avenues for this story about the hardship and beauty of growing up, which is, is always core to the Peter Pan narrative. But I think the way Zyland approaches it feels fresh and innovative. Um, even though there are similarities between the, between Wendy and beasts of the Southern wild. Um, I still feel like the each is its own thing. And I also kind of, I, Wendy by virtue of costing more and giving it, you know, having Fox searchlight back it for seven years, um, feels like a, a slightly more ambitious project in terms of its technical merits. Um, but I, I think both films are great. I mean, I love Beasts of the Southern Wild, but Wendy was just, I, I felt, taking the ideas presented in, in Beasts about coming of age and sort of the, you know, the troubling world. And I felt, found a way to sort of bring them together in a really nice way through the Peter Pan narrative. Um, but it's I, clearly it's not for everyone, <laughs> so I, I can't help I can't help people there. But I was I was exhilarated by it. there were there were scenes in this movie where I just wanted to like get out of my chair, run outside, and just scream in joy because that's what the kids are doing on screen. Like it just kind of draws you into their imaginations and their the how vibrant it is. Um, but I was also very moved by it. So. Uh, I, I don't want to be like everyone who didn't like Wendy is wrong, but like you know, I get it. I can, I actually, I understand where people are coming from when they don't like it. Uh, but for me, it worked beautifully. There were scenes in this movie where I wanted to fall asleep deeply because I was so bored. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> I thought it was fine. Uh, for me, it, it just felt a little too similar to Beasts of the Southern Wild. It's the same aesthetic, the same filmmaking technique. Um, ben Zeitlin and Dan Romer did the score, which is great, but also sounds uh, pretty much like Beasts of the Southern Wild, uh, you know, using non-actors again. Um, talking with Matt after the film, though, I, I came to appreciate the, what it was doing with the Peter Pan story a little bit more, um, which is why I encourage people to, you know, talk about movies with people because, you know, not everyone is seeing something from the same perspective as you, and so you may learn something. Um, and so that, that, you know, made me appreciate what he was uh, attempting to do. Ultimately, the film didn't super work for me, um, but I didn't hate it either. Um, I thought it was all right. It's it's fairly interesting, um, but if you're not with it, with it, uh, you may find it a bit of a slog. Yeah. Again, I'm not there. Are, the, you know, the thing is, is like you come out of these festivals and it's like, well, what can I recommend? Like for me, an easy recommendation is something like Palm Springs. Very easy to recommend. Yeah. Uh, it's harder to recommend something like Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, or Wendy. One because it's a hard watch, the other one because it's divisive. But whatever, I liked I liked the things that I liked, and I will support them. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to talk about some movies we didn't like, or do you want? To... <laughs> there are a couple that are very bad. Uh, yeah. You want you want to talk a little bit about the last thing he wanted? Let's talk about the last thing he wanted. It is amazing to me that the last thing he wanted is as bad as it is because it's from. D. Reese, who previously directed uh, Pariah, which was at Sundance and was um, kind of a breakthrough feature. It was her breakthrough feature. I think it was her first film as well. And that's pretty good. And then um, she did uh, an HBO film whose name I can't recall. 
Um, I didn't see that one. And then she did Mudbound, which I loved. And Mudbound also played at Sundance. Um, you and I both loved Mudbound. It was just yeah. so confident and it, it knew what it wanted to be and how to say it. And it was just really fantastic. It is amazing that the last thing he wanted is from the same director. Like, I, I, I don't know how it's possible because it is the, the film, every aspect of it is poorly made. Yes. It's uh, it's a Netflix movie, so you can watch it on Netflix very soon. I think it's uh, it's Netflix in uh, February, uh, yeah, February twenty first. Um, it has a good cast: Anne Hathaway, Ben Affleck, Rosie Perez, uh, Toby Jones is in it for some reason, Willem Dafoe, uh, and it's based on the book of the same name by Joan Didion, and it's a thriller. It's about Iran Contra, and Anne Hathaway plays a journalist who is trying to, um, you know, unravel this story. I think because it's so incomprehensible, um, you don't really know what's going on for most of the film. And but not in a way things. that feels intentional, not in a yeah. way that's like, oh, you're obscuring facts so that you to draw me in deeper. No, no. It feels like for some reason, every other scene has been deleted. Yeah. It's uh, it's not like Tinker Taylor, Taylor Soldier Spy, where it's like, oh, you just have to really pay attention, and then it, you know, it makes perfect sense, and it's actually just really smart. Um, this movie is just really poorly constructed, and it has a few twists and turns at the end that just make no character sense, given what we just saw. I mean, it kind of starts out as this kind of intense thriller in the vein of Argo or something like that, and then becomes like a soap opera almost. Uh, it's, it was shocking. Like, talking to everyone coming out of it, all fellow critics, everyone was just amazed at how bad it was. No, I didn't talk to anyone who was like, yeah, you know, that movie's okay. Or like, um, yeah, I can explain to you how this made sense. Ben Affleck, who is like probably the third lead in the film, um, was talking to Matt after the film. I said, can you describe to me what his job is specifically? And Matt said, no, I cannot. It just is not clear in the movie. And it's not because it's supposed to be hidden. It's just because the movie does not make clear what he does. Yeah, it's so many. And, and even if you were to be like, well, no, uh, you know, D. Reese purposefully constructed it in this way to be confusing so that you'll be drawn in deeper or to say something about the nature of the Iran Contra or some such, it still wouldn't work because there's still like, every, like Anne Hathaway is horribly miscast. Um, she doesn't have sort of that hard boiled edge. Um, that you kind of need from this character. It's not that Anne Hathaway can't do damage to people because she has like very well in films like Rachel Getting Married and uh, Les Mis, but this is not a good fit for her. Uh, Affleck is sleepwalking through this role. Um, yes. He looked, he, he, he is checked the fuck out. <laughs> yes. um, so, you know, it's, it's it's pretty bad. I mean, and then like like just character motivations don't seem to care, carry. Like uh, uh, Anne Hathaway is like, I'm a reporter and I'm going to get to the bottom of this story because you know people are suffering and I need my journalism to matter. And then she does the thing that her journalism is supposed to be exposing. Like she just does it herself. But like, and then even and later on, she's like, I don't know why I did that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's really bad. I, it's the kind of film like, and the way we're building up, you're like, ooh, maybe this will be so bad is good. No, it's quite boring. You're going to watch the first 20 minutes of it on Netflix at most, and then you're going to turn it off. That's what's going to happen. Yep. Yeah. Uh, like, I can mark the exact moment that most people will stop watching this movie. Yes. You'll know it when you see it, because you'll be like, what? Yeah. I and if you that. somehow make it past that moment, there's a moment where you'll definitely turn it the fuck <laughs> off. 
Or you'll start looking up like, wait, did my Netflix skip? Like, did I did I lose some scenes? What's going on? Yes. Anyway, <laughs> that's that's the last thing he wanted. Um, that was the only truly terrible film I saw this year. Like, there were some like slogs. Yeah. Uh, there were some there were some rough watches like Falling and The Nest and Lost Girls. Um but la- last thing he wanted was true was like one of the worst films I've seen ever seen at Sundance. Yeah. And then there were some other solid ones like Iron Bark is a really solid Cold War thriller with yes. Benedict Cumberbatch. Um uh like peak dad movie, I would yeah. say. I liked Worth, you know. I mean, I was sort of I mean it, it could be, I think it could be directed a little better, but I think the story it's telling and watching like Michael Keaton and Stanley Tucci kind of spar off, like that to me is worth the price of admission. Just seeing those two actors kind of like, you know, go at it. Yeah. And and not uh, like, and in, and in a way that like both of their characters like have a point of like a valid point of view. Like it's not like, ooh, one's the villain and one's the hero. Like it's, it's really fascinating to watch. Yeah. Uh, I saw Shirley, which is a Shirley Jackson biopic, the legendary horror author who wrote uh, The Haunting of Hill House. It's from uh, Josephine Decker, who made Madeline Spanline, and Elizabeth Moss plays Shirley Jackson. It's based on a book. It's like a fictionalized version account of this couple that goes to live with Shirley Jackson and her husband and uses that as kind of a window into Shirley Jackson's life, uh, who was crazy. She was crazy, um, but she was great, but she was crazy. And Elizabeth Moss is really fun in it. The movie does a really great job of kind of putting you in her mind. Um, it's kind of nasty in, in kind of a fun way. And uh, probably not for everybody, but uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Downhill was fine. The Will Ferrell, Julia Louis-Dreyfus remake of Force Majeure. Um, probably just go see Force Majeure. But it's getting at some interesting things. I, it just doesn't really fully nail it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there were, I'm trying to think, I would say in terms of documentaries, uh, assassins, which hasn't been picked up yet is really good. Uh, that was about the, um, uh, assassination of Kim Jong-un's half brother. And it's a really fascinating story and it's very well directed. It's kind of like, feels like a political thriller. Um, but it's, it's very well done. Uh, we both, the first one we saw this year was a documentary that'll be on Netflix called Crip Camp, which was very good. Um, about this uh, camp for the disabled uh, in the 1970s in upstate New York, uh, and then how the people who were there were kind of bonded um, and were instrumental in the disability rights movement. Yeah. Yeah, that, that one was good. I really liked the Taylor Swift documentary, which is on Netflix on Friday. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a really fun documentary called Boys State, which Apple and A- A24 picked up. I don't know if A24 picked it up as well. I think it was actually just Apple. Um, anyway, it's a, it's sort of, it's based on this, it's kind of like a mock US where every year in Texas, these like 1,200 boys gather. There's also a girl state, um, but this was about boy state. Uh, 12, 1,200 boys gather and they kind of like make a government. And so it's kind of like government, it's like politics camp. Um, and it's kind of fascinating watching these sort of uh, kids play out uh, a microcosm of our political dysfunction. Um, but it's very entertaining, if also kind of infuriating. Uh, it's from the directors of The Overnighters, uh, which was a great documentary. And this one is, is very entertaining, and I hope people see it. Yeah. So Overall, I, it, it was a solid solid uh, Sundance, I think. Um, you know, I came away with a couple that I loved, and that's, you know, all I can hope for. Mm-hmm. Um, and really excited to see Palm Springs and Promising Young Woman again um, later this year. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, like, you know, I, I don't want to complain about Sundance. It's just, I think also, you, you know, if you, to look at it from our perspective, 
um, you know, we're just going nonstop. Like you wake up at six 30 in the morning and you go till midnight and you're either watching movies or reviewing those movies. And in between you might have a sandwich and like yes. that's, and like, and the weather is cold and it's sometimes snowing and you kind of got to trudge from theater to theater. And, um, you know, and again, like, it's just <laughs> the, I think Tiff is just kind of spoils us a bit in a way, because not only are you like, I know what these movies probably are, but also they're all in one building. All the screenings are in one freaking building for the most part. And if they're not, they're just down the street and it's like Toronto in the fall. It's quite mm-hmm. lovely. Um, so <laughs> Tiff is just easier on the bones. I'll put it that way, even though it's yeah. kind of exhausting in its own way, it's still, Sundance has that sort of added bit of grit to it <laughs> that makes you just sort of bone tired at the end of the day. I think it's the weather has something to do with it, but you know, I mean, obviously we're grateful to go. I wouldn't go to, I, if, if I hated Sundance, I would not go to it for 10 years. I would just say, send someone else. Uh, there's obvious merit in it, but that being said, I'm very curious if the sense of discovery will return. Uh, this was the last year of their current head programmer. Next year, there will be a new head programmer at Sundance. And I'm very curious to see what that does, if anything, to the complexion of the festival. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, again, it's it's changing times, so uh, it'll be interesting to see how uh, Sundance adapts if people continue going to see movies that aren't Marvel movies. And, you know, as we said in our 2020 preview podcast, this year will be an interesting test case, as most of the movies this year are original stories, and we don't have any massive blockbuster sequels like Endgame or Star Wars to look forward to. It's a lot of, a lot of new stuff. So even even in the blockbuster realm, like Eternals is essentially an original film. Yeah, so we'll have to see how it all pans out. But uh, if you're listening to this and wondering what what films you should see that were big at Sundance, the we definitely would say Promising Young Woman, Palm Springs, Minari, um, and uh, Zola. I'd put Zola on that list. And not fucking Wendy. Oh, <laughs> go see Wendy. <laughs> Wendy. Um, all right. Well, uh, our recently watched is all that shit we've been watching for the last week. So that's what recently watched is this week. Uh, if you want to give up this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. We will be doing our Oscar podcast with all of our Oscar predictions. So be sure mm-hmm. to give that a listen.